how can a writer also make, say, a bar or even a brewery um, just another vehicle for characters to talk? Right, because there's that tendency to just use it as an established a setting and then just go right into screenplay mode and just. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action! Hello, hello, hello. Sibilance, sibilance. Check one, check two. Are we on? Anyway, guys, I am currently weaving in a fictional taco truck in this horror action screenplay I am writing. You see, the reason why is because in any movie, but of course, especially in some kind of horror action uh, thrill ride, there needs to be a moment to breathe. And in this case, the moment of brevity is with a fictional taco truck where I have my two characters talking about what to order. And one of them says, you know what's better than one taco? And the other character says, what's that? And the other one says, two tacos. The character now says, you know what's better than two tacos? And the other one says, what, three tacos? And the original character says, no, two tacos with cheese. So then finally, the character goes, you know what's better than two tacos with cheese? And the other character says, what, three tacos with cheese? And the original character who started this whole conversation says, no, a molita. Anyway, welcome to Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, club, in TV and film. I am your host. Monis Rose. Oh yeah, and we also talk about the screenwriting and the writing process. This is part two, guys. Part two of our interview with author, <clears throat> excuse me, clear my throat there, with author J. Ryan Straddle. You see, he is back in the hot seat. He is the creator of the fictional brewery Artemis Brewery, which is found and read and put to life in one's imagination in the amazing, fantastic, totally bitchin' novel, The Lager Queen of Minnesota. He is also the creator of the unique pop-ups in his debut novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Well, anyway, in part two, he takes us on a deep dive in making a fictional restaurant, in this case brewery, really mean something. He goes in details of how a character's choice of beer can really say a lot about him or her, or if the character is an alien of it. J. Ryan also gives some sage advice to emerging writers out there. I'm not going to tell you what that sage advice is. You got to listen to it, man, woman, child. Yeah, he says it pretty darn fast. So if your ears aren't actively listening well, then you snooze, you lose, pal. You just got to go back 15 seconds and uh, hear it all over again. All right, anyway, without any more bullshit, because I got to cut it now. 
Here's part two of Artemis Brewery and our interview with author J. Ryan Straddle. Go. Your breweries and your restaurants, they, they're three-dimensional. Like, How can a writer make a fictional brewery or a fictional restaurant pop out on the page? Well, I think it helps to have gotten to know breweries a little bit. I mean, I did. I went to over three dozen of them. Get a sense of how they run, how they operate, what they feel like on a busy day, what they feel like on a slow day, and capture some of that, but also capture elements that will be surprising or novel or unexpected. Because in writing a narrative, you're not usually writing the story of a normal day. <laughs> and so I think you want to get enough elements in the narrative that tell the reader you know what you're talking about, you've been in this environment, you can reflect the less mutable aspects of that environment. But you can also know what it would look like if something went wrong or if something went really, really well and how that would make people behave and change the environment in such a place. How can a writer also make, say, a bar or even a brewery um, just another vehicle for characters to talk? Right, because there's that tendency to just use it as an established setting and then just go right into screenplay mode. and just. (laughs) Well, the nice thing about Having a bar or brewery, particularly one that's open, a brewery that's open to the public, is you can bring in that third person or that fourth person that's going to interrupt the flow of this exchange and challenge it, coerce it into new directions. Plus, certain elements within a bar are always invitations to narrative. For example, I just wrote a scene today where it's a married couple, and the husband comes home from being out of town for a while, and he asks his wife for a beer, and the wife pours him a beer that she's trying to use up so they can get it off a tap and replace it with something that sells better. And so even the simple act of pouring a beer can bring an element like that into a story. She's not just pouring him a beer. Like Think about what beer she's pouring him and why. Like To me, what this says about the relationship is that it's practical. Like She doesn't pour him his favorite beer. She doesn't pour him a beer that's her favorite beer. She doesn't pour him a beer that she hates. She just pours him a beer that she's trying to get rid of so they can put something more popular on that tap. And he's fine with it. Like he doesn't like it or dislike it. He's just fine with it. Little opportunities like that present themselves in such an environment. And certainly also in a bar or brewery, there are other employees, not just you know customers that I brought up earlier, but people working behind the scenes that'll come in, you know, that'll interrupt the exchange or or will be known to be present and whose threat of appearing might cast enough of a shadow to affect the narrative. Edith's decision of how she decided, of how she found this, uh, chose this silver lining between her sister was ethos. It wasn't pathos, it was ethos. It was almost like not an olive branch, but more like a sign of forgiveness. Like, how do you, how do you get to that point as a writer with your characters? Because that's, that's huge. That's what I'm trying to, to get to that point of ethos. Because I feel as a writer, when you can get to ethos, when you can get to like forgiveness more than vengeance, more than, uh, I got you or I told you so or anger like that's just that's a good that's so much like wow well I think you have to establish early in the character's history in the narrative that he or she is capable of that that this would be the sort of person that under the right conditions could answer her better angels and behave as if Edith did in that situation. Yet at the same time, you want to give them a lot of reasons not to, because that's what makes plot, you know, that's what makes urgency is conflict. 
yeah, for me, it's about finding that balance, finding a character who's capable of great good, but creating within them the inability to always harness that good effectively. And so the reader is capable of being somewhat surprised when a good character behaves well, when a, when a character who presents herself as a good person reveals herself to be that person. It's one of the liberating aspects of writing in close third, too, is you get a little bit of interiority. One of my early writing teachers taught me that you won't believe anything a character says about themselves, but you'll believe what other characters say about them. So you can reinforce attitudes about a certain character by having other people reflect it, other people in their lives relate it to each other. So you can keep certain ideas about a character alive, regardless of their actions. So you can create a, just enough of an element of doubt. So when I put characters in a situation like I put Edith and Helen into, the reader may not know how this is going to go. For me, it was just a matter of <clears throat> establishing Edith early as a good person, but also a flawed person. A person capable of holding a grudge, but also a person of incredible grace and perhaps forgiveness. What are the uh, similarities, though, when it comes to crafting story between your time in reality TV or, say, your time uh, writing this VR Variety Fair piece or even writing one of your novels? What, uh, are, are there similarities, if anything? Well, I guess regardless of what I'm writing, I always think about the utility of the sentence I'm trying to craft and if it adds something that I haven't seen yet in this piece, if it moves the story or narrative or argument forward, if it entertains, informs, or, or hopefully both. But I have to admit it's quite a bit more freeing in novel writing where you just feel you have more space to explore a character. And you can always pull back later, but in writing a first draft, you can make it as unwieldy as you want. And certainly the first draft of Lager Queen was very unwieldy. I try to hold myself to a certain standard. At this point in my life, I want my public work to be up to my increasingly high standards. And so I feel like if I can't do that, if I don't have the time or the ability to devote to it, to make it measure up to my previous work or exceed it, hopefully, then I'm not going to do it. Being a writer is being, a, being constantly in the process of evolving, being reborn and challenging yourself and trying to find things to read that expand your consciousness of not just what it means to be a writer, but a human being. And the acceptance of the manifold aspects of that are what dilate you to new um, realms of creativity and feeling and depth in your own writing. These are your babies. These are your characters. So is Eva Torvald's pop-up supper club your dream restaurant? Like, did you, like, and, and same with Diana's brewery. Is that your dream brewery? Like, are these your dreams or no, they fit the characters you actually have? I think they fit the characters, but I think they do hew somewhat close to my own taste at times. Like when Diana makes her first beer, it's a single hop IPA, which it kind of is pretty close to my favorite. Like the one she chooses, the hop she chooses, Citra. Yeah, I just like the characteristics of that. And I feel like you know, my experience with kitchens taught me that if you write about food or drink in your book, that's what you're going to be served. And so I thought, oh boy, I better not write about half of Eisen because I'm allergic to those. So I better write about a beer I can drink and uh, enjoy 
because I might get served that. And that turned out to be the case. Both of these novels have uh, female heroines, female protagonists, even from Kitchens, and then Diana and the rest of her crew uh, from Lager Queen. So these characters receive their culinary and beverage education outside of the uh, post-high school academic realm. Yeah. So how do you feel of a person uh, going a non-traditional route to learn and to master and then eventually get exactly what they want? I'm all for it. I think particularly in this realm where college education is so expensive, I think it's perfectly legitimate, if not encouraged, to explore avenues to education and purpose that don't attend taking on massive debt. Now, that said, certainly certain industries where I think you'd, you'd be behold to the authority of a diploma, but or at the very least the contacts that one would accrue through the college experience. But certain trades, including culinary trades, I think, rely more on passion, devotion, artistry, People who are self-taught can often be just as successful. Uh, but it's not just the culinary arts. I feel there's a lot of realms in the world where one could explore their passion and achieve a measure of success in it without a formal education in that. I mean, I don't have an MFA myself, so I feel an affinity towards other authors who don't have MFAs. And I feel like uh, we're a community unto ourselves. And when I meet another author on a panel or in a literary event, and I find out they don't have an MFA, and they got to the same point that MFA writers did, that you know I did, that I think, like, oh, good on you. Like I, I kind of know what you went through in terms of, if you're a debut writer and you don't have an MFA, come look me up. You know, I'll read your manuscript. Speaking of emerging writers, what advice would you give a smart-driven emerging writer? Keep reading. That's what helped me the most, other than the extension classes, was the reading, just the tremendous amount of books I read between 30 and 39. I mentioned 39 because that's, uh, that's when Kitchens came out, my debut novel, was when I was 39. But I think that's when I read the most books I ever had in my life, was those nine years. Yeah, the, yeah, my 30s, I just was a blue whale, just sucking in books like krill. <laughs> yeah. I bought a lot of small world books out there in Venice. I lived in Venice that decade. Most of that decade. And so, yeah, that was my mom and pop bookstore. with Small World right there on the beach. What advice should uh, this smart and driven writer ignore? Well, that you have to get an MFA. You don't. You might end up in a situation where you're working too much to pay down the debt, that you don't do as much writing. I've seen that happen. If you can get a MFA program that's subsidized or even gives you a stipend, sure. But if you have to pay for it, I'd think twice. It might take you longer to develop that community that cohort that you get with an MFA. Maybe you feel you have due dates. If you can figure out a way to assign due dates to yourself, I would say do your best to avoid that if you can. I certainly might have become a better writer sooner if I'd had an MFA, but I don't regret the path I took. I wouldn't do anything differently. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, keep reading. Keep sending stuff out to get rejected. But also, if something gets rejected over 40 times, maybe stand back and look at it and go, okay, well, maybe I need to sit on this for a while. It's funny. I sometimes talk to young writing students and uh, people who've only had one story accepted or maybe two or maybe zero, and they tell me stories about anecdotes, about experience coming through persistence. 
and publishing coming after 70 to 80 rejections of a story. And well, in the era of the internet, where you're probably most likely to have a story published on the internet as opposed to print at this point, you can end up getting a story that you will find fairly and perhaps embarrassingly elementary published. (laughs) And you may wish uh, down the line that you weren't quite so persistent, that you'd held yourself to a higher standard and thought, well, okay, the most desirable publications, August publications that I admire of all, rejected this story, but I'm, I'm bound and determined to get it published somewhere just so it exists in the world. I thought that once, and looking back, I think I should have been more patient at times. I don't particularly regret any individual story of mine, but I can certainly look back at at many of them and go, oh, wow, this is clearly a developmental work. And perhaps that's a lesson unto itself for anyone who wants to know, hey, how did you write Kitchens of the Great Midwest? Or how did you write Lager Queen of Minnesota? You could go back and look at some of this early published work and see what I was like in my uh, intermediate stages as a writer before I was ready to write a novel, let alone send one out to the world, let alone get one published. The kind of things I was writing about and how I was writing about them. It might be instructive, but beyond that, I don't find it particularly useful for a writer to get their intermediate work published it exists it exists for a reason to make you a better writer you don't need to get it validated beyond that take me on the j ryan straddle food and bear tour of los angeles you can include every city from currently living to venice to i want yeah that that i'm i'm visiting you we're spending the weekend or a day j ryan where are we going impress me a money is no object transportation is no object and there is no traffic anywhere i try to think of like where would i bring my brother when he comes to town that's a good litmus test for me because my brother like me born and raised in minnesota but unlike me he remained there and so his palate and taste for food is a little different from mine in that he's a little bit more circumscribed by minnesota's version or taste and things one of the first places i brought him to when he came to California, was Guilagetza. I just can't think of a restaurant like that in Minnesota, let alone, well, anywhere in the Midwest, really. But that, to me, is a Los Angeles Mexican restaurant. It's an incredible Oaxacan experience. I find myself tempted to bring a lot of visitors from the Midwest there because it's just so different from what they've experienced as Mexican food and the experience of eating in a Mexican restaurant. Uh, I also like to go to um, Korean barbecue. Suwon Galbi probably is my current favorite, but sometimes Honey Pig, I guess. I mean, either of those two places might be stops for, you know, myself and a contingent including like Midwesterners from out of town. My brother, he used to visit me a lot when I lived in Venice Beach. And so one of our old hangouts there was, oh, what's it called? Oh, Hinano. Yes, exactly. It's that burger bar, great bar hamburgers uh, made on the same grill, I don't know, for I don't know how many decades. Perhaps most famous now is the bar where the character that inspired the dude from The Big Lebowski hangs out in Venice. One of the last dive bars in Venice, too. It's beer and wine, no liquor, just beer, wine, and burgers and it's pretty wonderful it's a lovely little hole in the wall right on the beach on washington avenue what are you drinking at diana's brewery which is artemis brewery and what are you eating at eva torvald's pop-up i'm gonna opt for the citra ipa at eva's brewery i'm sorry at diana's brewery and at eva's pop-up i'll 
take special attention to the venison. I like venison quite a bit. It's not something that you see often on menus. And quite often by the time it ends up in a restaurant menu, it's a little gamey. But if it's uh, caught locally and prepared right, it can taste wonderful. Thank you, Jay Ryan. This was awesome. No, thank you so much, sir. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. That's about as much of a Matthew McConaughey impression you're going to get from me. Thank you, Jay Ryan. You heard him, guys, gals, children, aliens, anyone else in the universe who's listening. If you want to read, go out and buy his books. They are The Lager Queen of Minnesota, which features Artemis Brewery and his debut novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest. As for me, listen to any episode of Restaurant Fiction you like on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, visit our website, restaurantfiction.com. My name is Monis Rose. And until you listen to me again or download the next episode, keep it real, keep it fresh, and always, always, exterior, keep it on the flip side. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night.